Hi, friends. Our guest, Andy, uh, collaborated with us on a heads up we'd like to give before diving into the episode. Um, On this episode, which I'm so proud of and so excited to share with you, we talk about some topics that can be extra difficult to hear, including healing from trauma and violence and coercion. And while we think this stuff is super important to talk about, which is why we're doing it in the first place, we never ever want to do this work at the expense of people and their well-being. And so before, during, and after listening to this, we strongly encourage you to please consider what would it look like to be gentle and compassionate with your needs, your experiences, and your triggers, and to give yourself or seek out the care you need and deserve? Our love is what we make of it. 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 Sex for smart people. That means you. Oh, hi. Hello. It's been a long time. Yes, we missed you last time, Dave. Um, welcome, welcome to Sex for Smart People. Everyone, indeed, to Sex for Smart People. I'm Stephanie, and I use pronouns they or she. I'm Dave, as you may have just heard, and I use the pronoun he. I'm, uh, I'm Andy, and I use whatever pronouns make you the most confused and uncomfortable. <laughs> I love you. Fantastic. Hi, Andy. Hi, Andy Eisenson is an attorney, mediator, consent and alternative justice models educator, and uh, they're 87% opinions by volume, according to Andy's Twitter feed. Andy, thank you so much for joining us, and I love that your voice is raspy for all the right reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I have... I've, the amount of time that I've been on testosterone, my, my voice did drop significantly. But today, the problem, or uh, not the problem, but what's going on is that I've spent two nights out of the last three doing very enthusiastic karaoke to celebrate my birthday. Thank um, goodness. And so what, what you're hearing right now is the aftermath of a lot of Green Day and Wheatus. Excellent. Yeah, my gender... My gender is teenage dirtbag, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> but of course. <laughs> so, Andy, let me, let me, um, I'll ask this, like, teenage dirtbag. So, like, <laughs> um, uh, we'll start the way we always start. What is your relationship to relationships? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so, I exist within a network of, um, queer and creative and anti-capitalist interdependence which is uh which is how i understand the placement of my identity in the world and the the work uh of building the world that i want to exist in as manifested in my personal life fuck yeah um can we be best friends (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk forever? Yeah, I, got, uh, I mean, I, I got to be in uh, Baltimore by like nine, but it's fine. <laughs> other than that, um, can I just to whatever extent you feel comfortable sharing? Can you just share a little bit about like what what led you to be the awesome human that you are today, or like what were some I, I don't know experiences or realizations uh, that made you passionate about what you are passionate about? Oh man, um, so I have this really. I was just talking to this um, this UCC minister at Creating Change, um, 
And for a long time, at Creating Change is a, it's the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force Conference every year. And it was in Chicago this year. Um, and like, there, it, it's a very complicated conference. There are some parts of it that are great and some parts of it that are truly atrocious. Um, but consistently, the people that I meet there are terrific. Um, and so I met this this minister, um, and she was talking about how she feels about the idea that a lot of people say in her experience of people of faith that everything happens for a reason. Um, and she said, and and she was saying that that it really bothered her that um, when people tried to take really atrocious things that have happened and mm-hmm. sort of reverse engineer justification for it to be okay, that that made her really uncomfortable. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it before because my, the way that I understand my faith, you know, is, is very different from how I think most Christian people operate in the world. Um, and so I, I'm interested by this idea of sort of faith and causality and reverse engineering causality um, as sort of a proxy for identifying what you can learn from situations that seem at first blush to be really harmful. Hmm. Um, And so, for example, I can say if a bad thing happened to me and from that bad thing, I learned something that's really valuable. Um, is it appropriate to then say, well, everything happens for a reason, you know, and that the reason that that thing happened was so I could learn that thing that was good for me to learn? Or is it enough to just say, well, a bad thing happened to me and then this is where I took that, you know, and not Hmm. try and alter the causality of it in my understanding. (coughs) All of this to say, um, I think... in my work and the work of people that I know, our greatest work comes out of the ways in which we have been hurt. Um, hmm. Because the best, the most important work that I do and the most important work that I think I see other people doing is work that grows out of um, a place, the place where compassion and rage overlap. Um, and from that place springs work that is fueled by anger and fueled by that real steel that's inside you when something has been really hard, um, but is also done in a way that is about lessening the amount of pain around you. Um, and so I think the the process for me of coming to terms with my own shit um, on a number of different fronts has been the process also of creating the work that I feel is my work in the world. Um, And so, you know, is it appropriate then to say, well, everything happens for a reason. Like, it's good that all of that shit happened because here we are. Uh, Questionable. Um, But but also, like, I wouldn't be doing the work that I think is most important for me to be doing if those things hadn't happened. So, 
maybe everything happens for a reason. I don't know. I've, you know. Hmm. That was a little bit of a tangent. I hope that's okay. Of course. It's a pretty awesome tangent. Um, there's something that I think about a lot, which is um, it's called the, the just world hypothesis. Mm. Um, which is, it's, I think it's technically like a logical fallacy, yeah, which is the that, just world fallacy. Isn't that yeah. what that's called? I think it is. Yeah. Which is the belief that like doing good in the, I don't know. It's, it's the idea that the life is fair, right? It's right. essentially what it is. Um, that being a good person means that good things will happen to you. And, and, mm-hmm. and the sort of side of that that I feel like is often elided is that therefore if bad things are happening to you, it's because you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I, I'm, but like, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, but it seems very prevalent. Um, it seems like it manifests a lot of different ways. Like, what was that book where think about things and it'll be good? Secret? The secret? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, where you, you manifest um, stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think that the way that you're describing it is really, it's, it's, it's sort of, I don't know. It seemed, it, it's, it's like the, the good version of that. It's like, okay, so, so forget that, forget the, the idea that life is fair. Life is what happens. And then what is it that we do to better ourselves or others in reaction to those things that are sort of outside of our control? I don't know. I find that really moving. I maybe if, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I, I also don't want to like impose that on anyone other than myself. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I think mm-hmm. that, that there are senseless, tragic harms and traumas that happen to pretty much everybody. And the, the question of whether or not you're able to take that and turn it into work and turn it into doing something positive, like that's a question of how resilient you are, which is often keyed to your positionality. Otherwise, like if you're not otherwise just completely depleted from like existing in the world as a person of color, um, you're more likely to be able to take a traumatizing event um, mm-hmm. and transform it as opposed to being bowled over by it. That said, like, you know, resilience and cultivating resilience is in and of itself crucial work. Hmm. Oh. We were talking about a little bit about positionality mm-hmm. before we were rolling and, um, and, and, I guess I'm wondering if you can just the, if if the words trans, if the concepts transformative and restorative justice are new to some people who are tuning in, um, would you be open to giving a, a kind of the nutshell version? And then we might dig in more as we address questions. And I know th- these are not new concepts, but right, absolutely. Um, um, so what we were talking about before is that um, what I've been finding is my positionality lately is sort of bringing extant concepts to people who hadn't previously encountered them. Um, and it's it's a really complicated feeling thing because on one level I'm getting all of these accolades for, you know, I'm hearing like, oh, your work, your work with transformative justice is so groundbreaking. And I'm like, it's not. You just don't listen to brown people. You know, because most, because I'm able to speak to 
people and be heard. Those Bambi eyes. Yeah, because I, I mean, there's no, there's no video on the on the podcast. But your terms. Yeah, you're gonna Bambi you're gonna have to take Stephanie's word for it. Like I'm, I'm a short. You can call me Flower if you want to. That is an open invitation. <laughs> I am a short white. Can I be Thumbridge person? <laughs> Um, with big Bambi eyes and like non-intimidating hair. Um, and so people will hear stuff from me that they won't hear from people that look more intimidating than I do. You know, I was, I was at a conference recently and I, I was talking about anti-capitalism to someone. We were just chatting and they were like, oh, anti-capitalism. That's so interesting. Tell me about that. Like I was the first person that ever thought of anti-capitalism. <laughs> and I was like, no, I, it's just that most of the people who talk about anti-capitalism, like, have chains on their pants you know and and much taller hair than i do and and so you you like older white cis poly persons see them and go oh they're scary they have nothing to teach me or they see a brown person talking about transformative justice and they're like oh they're scary they have nothing to teach me and so you know the work the work that i do isn't groundbreaking it's just translation it's translation into like uh into a method of communication that is acceptable to um, folks that won't listen to scarier people than me. <laughs> All of this to say, transformative justice is a thing that has existed, and restorative justice they have existed for a long time. They've been, they were premiered. They were they were sort of developed in mostly black activist communities um, when people were looking at. Um, when when these black women mostly were looking at the harms that were dealt intra-community and saying, how can we deal with these harms without relying on the state? Because obviously the state is the one inflicting more violence on our community than anyone else. Mm. Um, and so... The idea in the news right now, fucking Flint, Michigan is ongoing as we're recording. this. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and so when you think about thinking the state is on your side, right, thinking the police are on your side and who gets to do that, who has access to that? I I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire um, and there were like three cops, right? Um, and they were basically a bigger version of your dad. If you ran your car off the road, one of them would give you a lift home and like shake their finger at you. Um, you know, and the, the chief of police in my town, like his dog was friends with our dog and they would come over for doggy play dates. (laughs) So until I was 22, that's what I thought cops were. And then I moved to New York for law school. And I start. I, I got my start working with the National Lawyers Guild, uh, doing legal observing at protests, uh, which is a, a, vol- a type of volunteer work where you go to protests and you uh, you do cop watch. You you serve as a witness in police brutality cases and you track arrestees through the system to make sure nobody gets lost. So it's sort of the legal support role for direct actions. I started doing that at Occupy in 2010, 2011. And I was, I, I started seeing what was happening there and the way that the cops were acting and treating people. And I was like, I have been misinformed. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, you know, and I saw I saw a lot of people who were in similar circumstances to mine, like relatively young, relatively well educated white people from not New York City who came to New York City and were participating in Occupy and were having that realization as I was having it. I too had that realization during Occupy. Um where where you know your eyes are sort of open to the state is not what I thought it was. Um, you know, and a lot of people had that realization really viscerally by virtue of like getting hit with a police baton, you know? And so a lot of these like young white manarchists that were well educated, but not very experienced were having these experience for experiences for the first time. And we're saying, Whoa, guys, did you know the police will like, hit you with stuff and like mm-hmm. arrest you for no reason and all of the trans activists and people of color activists that have been in New York forever were like a uh, no like do tell you know and so it's it's my opinion that 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 uh dissonance is part of what spurred um for example the stop and frisk reform that's been happening to some extent um, mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, all of this police violence is happening to people who, A, didn't grow up expecting it, um, and so B, are outraged by it, and C, are listened to when they're outraged. Hmm. That's the pernicious beast, isn't it? That- yeah, that third one is a real doozy. Um, <sighs> anyway, so that was that was the first moment when I was like, I'm pretty sure... If, like, I called the cops, it would not happen like it happens in a movie where they come and they save you and they make things better. I'm pretty sure that that's not real. Um, you know, and, and the more work that I've been doing and the more I've been living, the longer I've lived in New York, the more I realize that, you know, that illusion is taught so strongly um, and it's so, per- excuse me, it's so pervasive and especially for white people, especially for white people from non-urban areas, a lot of people just never lose that. They never lose that idea. Um, and so you have to kind of work really hard to divest yourself of it. So that's the basis for, you know, I I started doing consent education um, and and education around sort of dealing with sexual violence in activist and sex positive communities and I heard a lot of people say things like well if you were raped you should just go to the cops and I started to realize you know that's being able to say that and mean it is a product of unexamined privilege hmm. mm-hmm and then, and so... Same with, if you have nothing to fear, why are you running? Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. or that sort or of like, thing. Yeah. what's the point of internet privacy if you don't have anything to hide? Mm-hmm. And so, at that point, I was like, okay, so... Starting from the, starting from the position that we don't want to use the prison industrial complex as a tool for liberation. How do we deal with the violence that we in community inflict upon each other. Hmm. And 
you know, and, and we went, it went through a bunch of incarnations. You know, we, we started off just saying we need to, as communities, we need to have the ability to exclude people because we didn't, you know, for a long time. We, if there was someone who was hanging around that everyone sort of knew about and everyone sort of whispered about. And you're talking about in the sex positive community. In, in sex positive and sort of progressive activist communities. Mm-hmm. If there was just someone who everyone kind of knew about them and sometimes they got whispered about, but, um, you know, there was really nothing you could do. There was no way of ejecting someone. And so I started, I started out just fighting for that. I started out just saying, look, we really need to be able to tell someone your behavior is unacceptable. You need to not be around us. And as time went on, I started realizing that like that in and of itself is still buying into carceral logic. Will you share the island analogy at some point? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what we were doing was we ended up with this model where if you, you were either good or you were bad, right? And if you were good, if you didn't abuse people, if you didn't harm people, you were on this island of safety. And if someone deviated, if someone harmed someone, if someone behaved badly, they were kicked off the island for good. And that was the only way we had of dealing with that harm. Um, and the problem with that strategy is that it ends with an empty island. Because you can't exist in the world without harming other people, especially Mm. as traumatized beings, you know, hurt people, hurt people. This is the way we live. And so it's, it becomes necessary to imagine a much more nuanced way of thinking about it. And then simultaneously, the process that we ended up trying to go through with these people, which was, you know, person A says that person B did a bad thing. And so we conduct a factual investigation to determine whether or not person B actually did a bad thing. And if we determine that person B actually did a bad thing, then they are bad and must be punished and must be put in a box, right? And if we determine that person B did not do a bad thing, then person A is a liar and is bad and must be punished, right? So that is an uncritical assimilation of the structures and logics of the criminal justice system. We were not doing anything different. We were just doing it ourselves instead of having, you know, a judge do it, which is stupid. Like it that process doesn't work in the criminal justice system. That's not ending up with, you know, with with reduced harm. It's not ending up with reduced rates of crime. Like that that is a structure and a system that has been proven to not fucking work even though like first off just flat out like listening to person a right was a thing that like was fought for to even get to the point of having this nuanced discussion absolutely absolutely you know and i think um you know i think one primary part of transformative justice is sort of having compassion for someone who has committed harm like holding them as a whole person um, and a member of the community and and treating them as that instead of a walking embodiment of bad, you know, or as a different class of human than us who are not bad, who do not harm. Um, and in in doing that work, I've been it's been challenging to navigate because I feel like it's it's that overlap of compassion and rage that I mentioned before. Like, I feel like in doing this work, you have to have both. And just the danger of holding nuance can sometimes lead to 
to to brushing oppression under the rug. Exactly, exactly. Um, because if if you're only coming from a place of compassion in the work and you don't have rage to fuel it, then you know it's actually not very different from the status quo. Mm-hmm. You're just saying, oh well, this person may have hurt you, but like they're still a person, and like it's okay. You should you should forgive them. You know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're if you're just working from a place of rage, then you you know you're saying you're you are bad, you are an abuser, you need to get away from us, you need to be punished, you know. And so you need both of them to temper each other. I feel like in order to do this effectively, because otherwise you're not like it's not actually transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a brief follow up, if I may. Why is everything so fucking complicated? <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I I have a serious answer for that. Yeah, I'm okay, good. I wish I didn't. <laughs> um, everything is so fucking complicated because um, we have been taught we, the way that we taught the world works in terms of like good and evil. Yeah. We were taught mm-hmm. that as children, mm-hmm. and yes, that was the way that we understood it as children, and we were taught that with media that's aimed towards children that reinforces that idea. That like, if you are good, good things will happen to you. If you are bad, you will be punished. Um, you know, the police are here to help. Like all of that stuff, we got taught as children, and it's child logic. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like our brains don't work that way anymore. We have the capacity for understanding more nuance than we did at like five when we first watched Batman, and we're like, oh, so if you're the Joker, then you get put in jail. Okay, I get it. You know, we're not children anymore, and we can't cling to those child logics of good and evil, no matter how comforting they are. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to say that holding nuance and complexity is the sexiest. (laughs) For sure. But but it's actually, but but, um, to to go back to, to... Zuccotti. I remember the. I remember the general council. So this is happening in Occupy. I remember the general councils getting less and less stuff done as the number of people there grew. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day it broke and the idea for the spokes council started. And I've maybe never had such a chill on my spine as when that was first brought up because I'm like, oh my god, we're forming states, right? Like we're actually like this this thing that we've heard about of of the beginnings of democracy. We're sort of we're walking down the same path and then watching how that devolved too was so very frustrating because it was a lot of very well-meaning people who still couldn't figure out a way even in a very small structure to figure out how to get things done with any sense of of i don't know justice and fairness yeah i mean the thing to remember is that like the the process through which we are taught about how the world works and like what is right and what logic you know what logics are true you know first of all we're taught that as strongly and as pervasively as we're taught like that you have to wear pants when you go outside you can't just unlearn that uh-huh. all at once because and especially you if you to. are a boy right <laughs> right like you can't unlearn that all at once just because you decide to it is a process mm-hmm. um and so of course it's going to replicate itself in our actions you know, as we, as we learn and as we practice. And this is true about the, you know, the structures of the criminal justice system manifesting in when we're trying to figure out how to deal with harm as well. 
you know, because I can I can sit here all day and I can say if we are queer people, like if we are poly people, if we are creative people at all, then we should have the ability to shake off the logic of the criminal justice system and create something new. I feel strongly about that, but I also recognize that those feelings coexist with very deeply enculturated understandings of how the world works Mm -hmm. and that like i still feel like if someone harmed me i want them to be punished and will not feel okay until they are punished i know Mm -hmm. that it's not true but i still feel it you know i i can't i can't eradicate that just by wanting to eradicate it it's a process it takes work Mm -hmm. you know and i i had this i've had this really really come to a moment lately because i I, I'm not I'm not gonna give details, but I had this moment of like having to confront my own feelings of whether I wanted a person who had harmed me in a really significant way, like whether I wanted him to basically die. Like I I I was I was confronted with this question of like if there was something I could do to stop this person from dying after everything he did to me, would I do it? And it was, it was a really challenging moment because the anger that I felt was like, no, he should be dead. He should be punished. He should be run over with a steamroller. He should be eaten by bears. Like everything bad should happen to him because he harmed me. And that is the only way I will feel okay. Um, but you know, that's, that's a feeling that is an emotion and i think the thing the thing that like if you are the person the type of person that calls things mindfulness is called mindfulness um that thing is about listening to your emotions but not taking them at face value mm-hmm. so like when i'm feeling anxiety and my anxiety is telling me the world is a scary place and you should hide under your bed forever and not do anything ever mm-hmm. You know, it is not correct for me to respond to that by going, oh, okay, and then go hide under my bed. You know, it is more valuable for me to respond to that by going, okay, I hear you. And I think what you're trying to say is, I forgot to take my pills this morning. Hmm. You know, or if I'm feeling depression and my depression is telling me that nobody actually likes me and I should isolate myself and stop inflicting the burden and pain of my presence on anybody because I'm just the worst, you know, I can hear that. And instead of going, Oh, okay. I guess what I should do is never inflict my presence on anybody ever again. I can hear that and go, okay, I think what you're trying to tell me is I haven't eaten in nine hours and need a sandwich, Hmm. like, or maybe a nap, you know, like there's, there's a reason that I'm feeling these feelings. And the reason is not that they are true. Hmm. And so if you apply the same thing to that, that rage, that anger, and you say, okay, I hear you that you want this guy to suffer and, and, and be punished and be harmed. And I think what you're trying to say is I'm in pain. (sighs) That those desires are no more my desires than the desire to hide under the bed forever or the desire to isolate myself. That's not what I actually want. Those are what the, the feeling wants. Hmm. And so that, that was the moment where I, you know, I'd been struggling with how can I, 
how can I do work that needs to be made of compassion and also reconcile it with this real anger that I feel? And that was, that was the moment that I realized, oh, this is how, this is how I do it. The anger is a feeling. I know how to deal with feelings. I've been in therapy for a few years. Wow. wow, wow. Andy, thank you. And just, um, I, I want to keep digging in here forever. And also, all that we're saying has a lot of resonance with some of the listener questions that we're excited to address with you. Yeah. Um, is it okay if we kind of if we shift gears that way? And is there anything burning in you to express before we do? Yeah, I want to say one last thing about about uh, having this realization of like, I recognize that the desire to have the person who harmed me punished is not really my desire. Mm-hmm. If someone had told, before I came to that realization myself, if someone had told me that, I would have hit them with a brick. Yeah. Right? If someone had come to me and gone, you don't actually want him to be harmed. You you should forgive him. You You're should just feel having compassion. feelings. Right. Yeah. You should feel compassion for him. You're yeah. just having feelings. Um, I I would have, I would have flipped them the bird up their nose. <laughs> you know? Like, this is not, that is not a moment of transformation that you can push anyone else to or should be pushed to if you're not there. Mm. Um, if you are in a moment, um, like any any person listening, like if you are in a moment where you're feeling overwhelmed by that rage um, and you can't imagine a world where it could coexist with compassion, like that is an okay place to be. That That doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or that your process is wrong or that you're your, or that you're less evolved, right? Or that or you're, something. or that you're less evolved in some way. Um, what I would, the way that I would encourage you to think about it, if you would like to move forward from a place of being overwhelmed by that anger, um, is to think about that anger as a feeling, um, and like notice it as a feeling in your body, and notice the things that it's telling you, and notice the things that it wants from you. Um, and try to identify those things as things that are connected to the anger. Mm. Um, not that that makes them less real or less valid, um, but just to notice the way that they are wrapped up in that anger and what that anger is in your experience of it. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to tell someone like you should not be angry. No, you should be angry, um, and. And that anger is a gift because it is your system and your spirit telling you, I deserve to be safe and I was not safe. Mm-hmm. And that is not okay. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that that is not okay and that you deserve to be safe is like a huge step, especially for a traumatized person. Mm-hmm. So like cherish your anger, be gentle with it mm-hmm. um, and, and, and let it speak to you. Oh, Andy, thank you for being who you are and doing what you do in the world. I'm just like flooded with deep respect and admiration and gratitude. Thank you. Okay, and now on to questions. Regular questions! Yeah! Yeah, oh no. Yeah. Regular <laughs> questions, yeah. It's good. Uh yeah. question one. 
I am a 30-year-old straight cisgender guy, and I am writing with a very heavy heart. Don't worry, this is not the only place that I'm seeking help. I value your perspectives in addition to the others I'm getting. Here goes. I had sex with a friend of mine who was five years younger than me, and in the moment her physical and verbal cues seemed extremely enthusiastically consenting. A few days later, though, she dropped out of school and told her family that I had sexually assaulted her. I am owning the fact that I committed sexual assault. Even if I didn't intend to break something, I have surely broken something. Much of my community has banned me. I have long been a feminist, and I've thought a lot about enthusiastic consent. I am not sure how I can possibly move forward from here. If the sexual beast in me is capable of violating one person, clearly I'm capable of violating others. Can I ever trust myself to be intimate with anyone again? Should I consider being celibate? What advice do you have for someone who has put a lot of thought into consent, but then somehow crossed lines of consent anyway? <sighs> this is... Where do we begin? This is such a such a difficult situation. Um, so, so the first thing that I would tell you um, is that... Um, it seems like when you say the sexual beast in me, um, that you're really, um, that you're leaning towards dehumanizing yourself a little bit. And Mm. I would, I would caution you against that. Um, you have not removed yourself from the class of human people who, deserve compassion and and can exist in the world and can move forward in the world by committing sexual violence um i think other than that a lot of the a lot of the framing that i'm seeing from you is is a good foundation um you know i think i think the fact that you're not starting off by saying, well, I didn't mean to do anything wrong and I thought everything was fine. So what's the problem? Um, you know, I, I applaud that level of basic human decency. That's very rare. Hmm. Um, I can, I can think of a couple of concrete strategies for you for moving forward. Um, the first thing that I would say is that, um, I want you to think about what might have gone wrong for her during the during the encounter that you had because there are a lot of things that can happen to someone that will make them not push you off when actually things are super not okay hmm. one such thing is intoxication um if there was any sort of intoxicant involved in that interaction. Um, if, if one of you was drunk or high, um, you know, that is a thing that can make it difficult to, uh, to assert boundaries. Um, and so it might be worthwhile to start being really conscious about, your level and the level of the person you're interacting with of sobriety. Um, if you're considering sexual activity, right? Like if you want to make sure that the person that you are trying to have sex with wants to have sex with you, making sure that they are sober, you know, in their right mind, able to communicate everything they need to communicate is a really good first step. 
Um, the other thing that may have may have occurred between you is that if if she had previous experience of trauma, mm. that would affect the way that she would react in a moment of experiencing trauma again. Um, a lot of the time, so there's a there's a um, thing, a, a concept that like commonly is known as fight or flight response. It's actually more things than that. Um, so it's when your, uh, uh, your, your lizard brain gets engaged, right? Um, and you sort of go into animal mode and you're like, ah, there's a bear going to eat me. What should I do? Um, fight is one way that your brain can go. Flight is another. And then there's freeze, uh, which is, you know, sort of trying to take in as much information as you can. Uh, there's attach, which is reaching out for help. Um, and then there's uh, submit, or I think submit is, is has also has another name uh, in some modalities, but it's sort of a hold really still, like play possum and wait for it to be over, hmm. right? So, so the thing about your fight or flight response, um, the thing about your lizard brain is that it's pretty dumb. It doesn't know that there are more kinds of danger than a bear is going to eat me. Um, And so when you think about how your system responds to danger, you have to sort of evaluate it through that lens of, well, my system doesn't know that there are things to be scared of that aren't approaching bears. Um, And so when you think about, for example, the submit response, um, and now the submit response is one that I'm very familiar with. This is how, this is the thing that my trauma brain uh, thinks is a good idea. Um, if there is an actual bear actually coming at your shit, then holding really still and waiting for it to go away is a great idea. When the thing that's happening is someone is having sex with you that you don't want to be having sex with you, then holding really still and waiting for it to go away, you know, that's that's one strategy and when your brain is in that mode you uh you basically forget that there are any other options this is like one of the things that trauma does to the brain um and i I will also say that if i say anything that sounds smart about trauma um it is because i have an awesome therapist who works in a modality called somatic psychotherapy um Mm. and it has helps me enormously and i highly recommend looking it up so when you are a traumatized person, uh, your brain, your system gets stuck in one of these modes, right? And for a lot of people, it's the mode that you tried to access during the the traumatizing event hmm. that was overwhelmed. So, for example, if during a traumatizing event you try to fight and your fight instinct is overwhelmed and you sustain harm anyway your system gets sort of stuck in fight mode. Um, And so whenever you experience danger, fight mode is the only one you can access. Mm. Um, And so you get angry and you get combative in situations where that's not really appropriate or that's not really the best way of dealing with that situation because your system forgets that there are other options. And so if the mode that your system gets stuck in is submit or even attach, um, Hmm. when you're in a circumstance of what your system perceives as danger, you'll sort of automatically fall into that mode 
and you'll forget that there are other things that you can do to deal with that danger. Hmm. You won't be able to access those other tools. Um, and so... And that submit and attach can appear they can, like enthusiastic consent? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when, you're, when your urge is to attach and you are in a circumstance of danger, you want to reach out to anyone that you feel like can protect you. Hmm. Um, and you want to sort of... You, you want to have someone there who you feel like can protect you and when the only person there is the person that's harming you that instinct then becomes to get inside the swing hmm. right you want to get as close to them as possible because your your traumatized system is saying the closer you get the safer you'll be hmm. and i mean of course we don't know exactly what happened with this person and my heart breaks for for the person who was assaulted and my heart also breaks for this person writing in and I hear like what is that to hold like having like being aware that you've caused a lot of harm even when it sounds like that he's been thoughtful about consent we all need to be more thoughtful about consent and so I wonder like and then that he's not looking to be absolved he's looking for ways of moving forward and so what I guess this is where I just like I, just, I um like I, I feel heartbroken, but I'm I wondering like what you know, he's wondering like, should I be celibate? How can I trust myself again? Like like what when this is it is possible to read cues wrong and therefore cause actual serious harm. Absolutely. What are ways that he can do moving forward? What are ways that other people can can is it check in better, deeper, go slower? Is it, um, what, what does due diligence look like? There. Well, so I think the, the first, the first thing that, um, that I would say is that when you're dealing with a person who is traumatized or maybe traumatized or whose status is traumatized, you don't know, you just need to get rid of the idea that sex can be easy. Hmm. Um, you need to to give up on the idea that you can have sex without extensive negotiation and conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're not willing to sit down with someone and say, "Hey, listen, like, are there any triggers that you want me to know about? Is there anything that can make you go nonverbal? Tell me about uh, tell me about your needs. How can I be gentle with the, with?" the needs of your lizard brain in your system and Mm -hmm. the harms that have happened to you. Um, because those are things that can make your conscious brain go offline. Um, you know, and I want you operating on all cylinders here. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to have that conversation, then you're not willing to do what's necessary to have sex with that person. Mm -hmm. And that goes for even if you're not aware that, someone has experienced oh, exactly like, yeah yeah i mean i i i've been starting to feel like at this point we should just treat everybody as if they are traumatized like there's no <sighs> way to live under capitalism and not be traumatized <sighs> in one way or another especially if you are like not a straight cis white dude uh-huh. you know and so using a lens of trauma to analyze everybody's reactions mm. i think is actually like that's a direction that i'm moving in for my own and what if people say, oh, but I just, but if we don't, can't just go with the flow, then it's not sexy, which is something I hear a lot. 
<sighs> if you don't believe it's possible to have good sex that involves a lot of conversation, please call me and I will prove you wrong. <laughs> that is a preposterous idea that you learned from watching movies, and those are fiction, and it does not work that way in real life. Yep. Um, here, here. When you see a romance novel, you know, or a romance movie, or even a porn, where like the two characters are just going wild at each other and tearing each other's clothes off and there's sweeping music and no one's talking because that would ruin the moment and it's just so hot that they just like know what each other wants like the reason those two people know what to do is because they have a script (laughs) and the rehearsal schedule and (laughs) yes if you the director (laughs) if you have a script you can totally do that, right? Like, if you have talked about in advance, like, we're going to go through this whole thing and we're not going to talk at all and it's going to be really hot and you're going to tear my clothes and my underpants are going to end up on the chandelier, you know, and, and in the moment there's going to be no talking at all, just sort of growling and, and, and licking sounds. That's rad. Um, but, like, those are the circumstances under which that happens in real life in a way that's not harmful. Or I've had those experiences growling and licking sounds and no checking in and like super hot. But like after like years of being with somebody and knowing yeah. them deeply. And I think to me, that's so like the, the rewarding part of everything is, is a, is an ongoing conversation is that like mm-hmm. there, there, there can be a place of, of earning that trust, but not, but yeah. But right. Not, so I, I feel very strongly, you know, a lot of people, when I do consent work, a lot of people that think I am bad and my work is bad, the way that they critique me is they say, uh, they, they talk about this, this sort of affirmative consent model of like verbal, active, spoken consent to every act every time in every moment like every time you're like you want to put your hand in a different place you say can i put my hand here um which is an awesome way of having sex i do it a lot not all the time but a lot um and and people that that want to tell me that i'm doing bad work they say you think everybody should be doing that uh and i'm like i i don't though like i think that there are lots of ways to communicate and I think that you and the person you're trying to bone should be on the same page about what way you're going to communicate. Yeah. Like, if you both want to have that kind of active, constant verbal communication, that's great. Um, and you should both do that. And if you sit down beforehand and you say, okay, so I, uh, I consent to A, B, and C. Um, let's do those three things. Uh, and everything else is off the table. That's a good way of communicating. If you sit down and you say, really anything other than like peeing on me, anything you want to do other than that is great. That's a fine way of communicating if that's if if exclusive lists are what you want to how you want to use. Um, you know, if all you if you want to sit down and say, look, everything's great. Uh, if I say bananas, we stop. Uh, but with unless I say bananas, everything's cool. Awesome. Like. The, the thing that I care about is that when you and your partner say something like, I consent to this, or I don't consent to this, or uh, I want to do this, or I don't want to do this, that you're on the same page about what you mean by that. Hmm. I call it meta-communication. Um, like, you know, uh, it's sort of a scale. Like, on one end, there's, is it okay if I move my hand two inches to the left? And then all the way on the other end, there's, like, the sort of 
BDSM total power exchange, like the relationship itself is predicated on consent to everything that the dominant partner wants to do. And there's no way to withdraw consent to an individual act without ending the relationship, which is also a totally valid way of doing it, by the way, if you're both on the same page about it. Um, and that like, I don't care what type of consent practice you do within that scale, as long as you talk about what type of consent practice you're doing and agree on it. Uh huh. I'm just realizing that we have or you, you, we, you um, have have basically addressed the next question too. So I'm just going to read it and layer it in okay, to yeah, this discussion as we build on. Um, so this other question is: Hi, queer human writing in pronoun they them theirs. Please help. This awesome woman I just started dating has a history of sexual assault and trauma. She's amazing, and I want this to work. I have a hard time though when we're having sex, not just walking on eggshells. Mm. And I think what you said before, mm. Andy, of, of of just approaching everybody, not just this woman, but everybody through a lens of, of potential trauma and really asking about content and triggers is yeah. a great starting point for this person as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to speak as like a person with sexual trauma myself. When I'm initiating contact with someone new, um, what I want from them, what I want is to know that they care about me feeling safe because I spent a really long time with someone who didn't care if I felt safe and didn't care if I was okay. And so what I need is to have evidence to show the like scared little, scared little trauma bunny that lives in my heart to show that bunny, like, it's okay. This is a different thing. This is not that thing. That's how my shit works. Um, and I have figured out that that's how my shit works through trial and error um, and and through like a lot of work on it. Um, most people who exist in the world as traumatized beings, especially beings with sexual trauma, have had to do that work in order to survive. Mm-hmm. They know what they need and they would probably really like to tell you. Um, and so the more you can make a safe space for them to communicate that, the happier you'll both be. Like I, I usually start when I'm negotiating, you know, with someone, when I, with, with the understanding that like, you've got your own shit going on, you've got your own triggers. I start by talking about mine in order to say, this is a safe space for that. Like, I want you to bring your whole self into this interaction with me. I want to know you know, your mental health needs. I want to know how I can be gentle towards the whole person that you are in all of the experiences that you have had, um, or not gentle if that's what we're doing, um, in order to make this a positive experience for both of us. Um, so I start off by, by offering my own vulnerability in order to invite Mm. the same in reciprocation. Um, and so, uh, lovely, uh, lovely genderqueer human, I would say try in, in your negotiation with this person, start off by saying, hey, it would make me feel really good if you would call my junk this. Um, and if you touch my chest in a certain way, it'll make me dissociate. And if I get touched in a way that makes me dissociate, here's what I need around that. You know, I start I start off my negotiations by saying, if I dissociate, here's what that's going to look like. 
and here's what I need. Like, I will look like I have suddenly kind of died inside and like, will just sit and stare and not really be talking. And it's going to be alarming. And that's how you know that like something has gone very wrong inside my brain. Mm. And what I need around that is for someone to make sure I'm warm, you know, put a blanket around me maybe, um, and then sit with me and tell me where I am and like when I am Mm. and what's going on and who you are and like what we've been doing that day. And that will reorient me in like space time and like let me know the thing that my brain thinks is happening is not happening anymore. So that's an example. Um, And most people I think who have experiences like that will have something like that to tell you. What if she doesn't? What if the person who wrote in has already checked in and and the new person that they're dating um, is unclear about their needs or their triggers mm-hmm. um i think i think that that's that's a really good question and i would say just starting the conversation by saying i want to be in the journey of figuring out what safety looks like for you mm-hmm. i want to be on that journey with you mm-hmm. um is going to start the process of helping helping this person be able to communicate figure out what their needs are and communicate them to you mm-hmm. you know and there are there's going to be trial and error if if for example she doesn't know what helps her when she's triggered you're going to have moments where she's going to get triggered and you're going to try a couple of things and there are a lot of resources like if you go on if you go on tumblr and stuff there's a lot of like here are some techniques for dealing with triggers resource lists um that you can get ideas from um to try things to see if they help Hmm. um you know you you can you can find a list and if and you know the next time that that she gets into a trigger state you can try you know oh well for some people smelling a strong scent will bring them back for Mm -hmm. some people they need to be warm for some people helping them get into a shower is really helpful you know and and just trying strategies until you find what what makes her feel as safe as she can Mm -hmm. um but I think the 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 more you can communicate about it and the more you can let her know that you want her to bring her whole self and her needs into the relationship with you, that you want to support her in not feeling ashamed in having those needs and having that pain, um, the more you can help her not feel ashamed to, t- to talk about those things with you, the easier it will be for her to talk about them with you and the easier it will be for you to support them. Hmm. Wow. And I, we could talk about this for hours and not mm-hmm. exhaust the richness and, and nuance here, but and any quick closing thoughts before we move on? I just, I just thought of an analogy. It might be really stupid, but I thought of it. So I'm going to share it and you can tell me if it's stupid or not. <laughs> A lot of people, when they're talking about sex, it seems like they want it to be like a roller coaster ride. Like you get on and you throw caution to the wind and it's fun and 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 your and the wind is blowing through your luscious hair and uh, that I used to have <laughs> and <you>. and <laughs> um and uh, and you're on a track and it, it it goes exactly where it's supposed to and it's fun but doesn't make you black out and that's all good but I feel like it was something that I've certainly I've had that thought but I feel like we forget that like 
engineers had to go to engineering school and build the <laughs> roller coaster and know how many g-forces a human can take and build the track so that you don't hit your head and don't black out yeah. and make sure that uh, it's following osha standards and that the thing's not going to go careening off the track and that like we have to be the own engineers of our sexual roller coasters yeah. <laughs> i like that yeah. i like that a lot Wow, you wow, have wow. to build the track first. You can't just it, it's not a naturally occurring thing. Build the sexual roller coaster track. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like Thank that a lot. You, Dave. I also I also think that like f- there are that your experience of whether or not you feel like there should be a track may predicate on like how you move through the world. Like I think there are a lot of people who like experience themselves as straight and cis. Who are like I know what sex looks like I learned it in the movies uh-huh. um, and so it's really shocking when that ends up being being hard or being not okay for them because there is a blueprint there that they think yeah. they're supposed to follow yeah. when you're a queer person or a trans person um, you know right from the start you're gonna have to build this shit from scratch <laughs> right like yeah when I when I get into a uh, intimate situation with a new partner like neither of us have any idea what's going to happen we yeah. have no idea what sex will look like for the two of us we have to figure it out from absolutely nothing uh-huh. um, and I think you know I think that when you're when you're queer when you're trans you're kind of forced to do that and uh-huh. I think that it's I think that it's an extra challenge when you're a straight person and or a cis person that you aren't forced to do that, but I think it's still a good idea. But how to invite yeah. yourself away from yeah. the scripts, even yeah. if they're available to you. That yeah. like, even though you could go with what you learn from the movies, that like, that's not actually going to be fulfilling, you know, because your, your sexual desires and your body and your experience is still unique. Yep. You know, you are not just a, an interchangeable manifestation of straight cisness. <laughs> Probably. Here, here, yeah, probably, probably not. But, life. So here's the thing: we have no more than two minutes to address question okay. number three, okay. which I love. Question number three: Fuck Valentine's Day. Am I right? <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're right, Dave. <laughs> yes. Yep. You're yep. right. Fuck Valentine's Day. That's some bullshit. And fuck the the Valentine's Day industrial yes. complex. Yes. 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 I- that would tell you there is one way to love and it you involves must, buying you, uh, things. Uh, and, uh, my, yeah. my love is available for purchase of chocolates. This is how you shall get me to understand that we care for one another. I mean, look. I have chocolate here, but I can't give it to you. Through I was promised teleporters. Uh-huh. I'll work on um, it. Yeah fuck, yeah, fuck Valentine's Day. Fuck the idea that love can or should be contained in any way. Yep. Um, if, I mean... I was about to say fuck monogamy, but that's not exactly <laughs> what I mean to say. Fuck, <laughs> fuck, fuck presumption man- of fuck whatever. mandatory yeah. monogamy. Yeah. Fuck the idea that love is a finite resource. Yes. Um, yes. When you light a candle with another candle, the first one is not less on fire. So give love every single day um, because it's not going anywhere. And separate it from commerce. Um, separate it from commerce. Eat all the chocolate you can. Separate it from commerce, but also eat all the chocolate you can because chocolate is great. Yes. Um, and the day after Valentine's Day, all of the chocolate is on sale, and that's nice. Well then, so fuck Valentine's Day, but 
appreciation for if, the app. Now, now it, uh, <laughs> here, I'm here. probably pushing the two-minute boundary, but if you are a monk who is attempting to anonymously give dowry money to uh, a family within your parish, you know, have at. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for a second you said if you are a mug, like sure. if you are a coffee cup. Yeah. Oh, hi. It's me, Dave, from Sex or Smart People, that podcast you're listening to just now. Uh, this podcast, which you're listening to right now, is a labor of love for me and for Stephanie, and it is something we deeply believe in. Um, but it's also something that uh, we are paying for out of pocket, uh, to the tune of about 150 bucks per episode, to host our website and pay our audio engineer. Um, in order to sustain this, uh, if you like what you're hearing, and you have a buck or two or five or 37 to kick in per episode... I cannot tell you how appreciative we'd be. Um, our core content, this p- podcast, is now, and it always is going to be free, but um, Patreon, which is uh, we partnered with, allows our community and our listeners to make small, ongoing contributions to help fund the show on a voluntary, per-episode basis. So if you dig what we're doing, and you do have that buck or two per episode, um, if you'd consider contributing per episode, we would super appreciate it. And if enough people in our community did this, it would just make a huge impact uh, on the possibility of this podcast continuing to go. Um, we do, uh, as always, offer you an invisible, non-existent tote bag for any contribution that you make. Um, and we have visions for where this could be in the future that are huge and that your contribution will help support to make a YouTube channel and do live shows around the country and maybe world and maybe even paying our guests for their time that they so generously donate to our podcast. Um, we absolutely love doing this show and uh, it's changed our lives for the better for sure and it keeps us honest uh, with each other and with everyone in these conversations that we care so deeply about and um, we hope that it's been good for you too and if it has been and you have a little bit of cash to spare and we know times are tough but if you have it my goodness we'd appreciate it you can find that link to our Patreon page at our website with that ever easy to remember website uh, URL of sexforsmartpeople.com Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. And quickies! Yeah! Dave, okay. you're up. we got to be quick, I've heard. So let me tell you, I don't even know if I brought this up on, on Sex Smart People before, but even if I did, I'm going to bring it up again, that there was an article on The Toast in July that's uh, that was called Where's My Cut of Unpaid Emotional Labor or something of that sort. Um, I don't remember mm. what, the, what the exact title was. Um... Uh, I can tell you that the author was computers. We'll get back to the author, but it is about um, how uh, how much well, what we consider to be uh, women's work in culture is real and true labor that should be compensated for given the capitalist structure that we live in. And to just call it women's work and expect it to be done is such uh, such a manifestation of the patriarchy in everyday life, and it's something we need to examine um, and really fight against. And this led to probably the best metafilter thread that's ever been that's just uh, hundreds comments long um, with uh, women sharing their experience of being taught and made to think that uh, emotional labor was uh, their, I don't know, like birthright, but to, to have to do it. And to Duty. not be um, and to yeah. not be uh, receive no compensation for it. So we'll send links to the. I think that we posted on our pages when this article came out. We'll also post the. We did. We'll yeah, post, we'll again. post the meta filter thing. Um, it's really, really, really worth digging your letting your brain dig into for a bit. 
It certainly is. And uh, I'll go next. I have two super quick quickies. This will really be under a minute. My first super quick quickie is this idea that my friend had about like maybe like the highest calling of anybody would be to listen each other into fullness. I just fucking love that phrasing and that idea. And I have always like sort of kind of had that, that intention, but that like that phrasing makes it land even, even more. So in love in sex and family in community in, uh, as, as, as citizens, um, what would it mean if we all carried that as a shared intention to listen each other into fullness and listen as something like active that we're like stepping up into, not, not, um, not moving back from like, it's not just like not talking, but like listening as like a, a noble act. So I love that. Second thing is um, Jamie Beckenstein, who is our director of development and social media. I love him. And he is studying American Sign Language. And he shared with me that the sign in sign language for, um, for romantic partner breaks down to share person, which I, makes oh, me feel... Oh, that's like my favorite thing. Sign. I want to be yeah, a share person. Share person. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my two quick quickies Those for once. For um, once I'm by the way, Jess Zimmerman Andy. was the author of that article on the toast. Just wanted to make sure to give credit. Awesome. Where credit's Thank you. Um, so a thing that I'm excited about um, is an event that's coming up. Is that yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, February 11th. So you're, you're talking about the, the concept of unpaid emotional labor. Um, you know, and I, I live in a house that's very active in um, sex workers' rights work. And um, and so I get to bear witness to a lot of um, a lot of conversations about like the emotional labor that goes into sex work. Um, and it's given me like it's been it's been so illuminating for me and so valuable to be able to learn that stuff. Um, and so my my lovely roommates, uh, work with an organization called the Red Umbrella Project, which is about um, sex workers storytelling um, and and getting and sharing support and being in community together. And they are doing a fifth anniversary gala on February 11th. Um, and it is such a good organization, and it's so important, um, and it's so crucial to like lift up the voices of one type of women that like our society still thinks of as less than human. Hmm. Um, and so it's February 11th from 7 to 9 p.m. And uh, and it is at the New Yorican Poets Cafe. Um, and so you can uh, you can get more information by looking up the Red Umbrella Project or Red Up uh, online or on Facebook. Thank you, Andy. And quick shout out to if anybody wants to learn more about you and your work, oh, where right. can they find that? Um, so you can follow me on the Twitters. Um, my Twitter handle is Andy Eyeballs. Um, I have a Tumblr, but it's mostly gifts of dogs getting their heads stuck in. Uh, what is the URL of that, please? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have. I mean, I. I do. I. I would say that my. If if it's the opinions you want, it's mostly Facebook, where my Facebook name is Andy I E Y E, um, and Twitter, where it's Andy Eyeballs. Um, and you can also, yeah, you can get in touch with me either of those ways. Um, if you want to tell me about your feelings or send me pictures of dogs who have gotten their heads stuck in things. Um, and the, the, the final thing that I want to say is like, we've been, we've been 
feeling sort of sad about the just world fallacy not being a thing and it's like really easy to fall into despair yeah Yeah. um but like we are i i have a i have a tattoo um on my shoulder that is a, a phrase from the talmud that says it is not incumbent upon you to finish the work but neither are you free to abandon it. Um, You know, it's easy, especially under capitalism, for us to key our feelings of worth to having accomplished the thing. Mm -hmm. And when the thing is like justice, there's no way to not feel like a failure. Um, And like, I just want to remind everybody that, that working for justice and working for peace, like, yeah, it's our job, but it is not our job alone. We are a link in a chain. Um, and the chain of that work stretches into the past to our ancestors and into the future to our descendants. And like mm-hmm. we stand arm in arm with them. It is not our our job alone. Like We're not alone in this. Fuck yeah. And thank you for that, Andy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule to yeah. be in conversation thank you so with much. us. Thank you for putting up with me rambling. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for episode 27. Thank you again so much to Andy for joining us. And thank you from the bottom of our hearts to all of you for listening and for being a part of this conversation. And if you dig what we do, we would love to stay connected with you in all of the places. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at Sex for Smarts, on Tumblr. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Dogcatcher and Stitcher. So many places. And we absolutely love hearing from you. Uh, please send us your thoughts, your questions, your objections, your ideas at any time. You can find all of our info on our website, sexforsmartpeople.com. And we've got that crowdsource question, yeah, that we have not yet responded to. It is, do you know of any resources for overcoming jealousy? My wife and I both want an open relationship. In theory, everything is peachy, but the green-eyed monster has got quite a hold on me, and I'm thinking that maybe I'm just not cut out for this. I don't know if I'll ever be able to handle it. So, of course, every question is a crowdsource question, but this one in particular will wait until a few more responses roll in before we share those responses from all of you and then also address this question with a guest. We look forward to seeing you next time on Sex for Smart People. Bye for now. Okay, uh, asserting desires and boundaries without shame is the sexiest. Mmm really holding nuance and complexity is the sexiest share people are the sexiest yay oh Oh, i love that i feel so warm inside (laughs) bye love to everyone Bye. bye